I feel like we're, we're finally reminding ourselves or being reminded by Zelensky and the Ukrainian people about our own freedoms and what we cherish about being American. It is the week of March 7th, and welcome to episode 122 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Matthew Ferraro, counsel at the international law firm Wilmer Cutler Pickering Hale and Door, Sarah Stewart, executive director of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, Martha Miller, fellow at NSI and former special assistant to President George W. Bush, and myself, Les Mr. Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Russia's massive invasion of Ukraine began two weeks ago, and I don't think anyone would have predicted where we are today. Russian troops are bogged down. They haven't taken Kyiv. The Ukrainian Air Force still exists. There are videos of Ukrainian farmers taking Russian armored vehicles uh, away from the road and into hiding somewhere. They're so common, we don't even really pay attention anymore. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is speaking to everyone, to Congress, to the European Union, to all of Europe, to heads of state around the world, making the case for aid to the Ukrainian people. Amazingly, thousands of people are protesting in the streets of Russia, even with the threat of spending the next 15 years of their lives in prison. Sarah, I, I want to go to you first here, but I'm, I'm hoping everyone can weigh in. How, how did we get this situation so wrong? No one expected this. What, what, what were we missing? Well, I think we are in unprecedented times right now. Um, you know, we've been at Silverado. We've been following this issue very closely. Our, our chairman, Dmitry Alperovich, has been tweeting about this since the first Russian troops started making their way to the to the Ukraine border. And I do think that a number of people um, predicted that um, Putin would not be moving troops um, if he wasn't planning to actually invade. But I think few people really could guess what was going to happen next after that. Um, I think that the level of preparedness of the Russian military and the readiness of Ukraine are two, um, you know, elements that I wanted to dive into a little bit, a little bit more here, um, because I think that there was really an expectation, including, you know, even by the Russian military that, you know, once the invasion started, that we would see some results in a few days where Ukraine was going to you know, relatively quickly topple. And as you've laid out, Les, it couldn't be, couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, last night, Silverado hosted a Twitter space uh, with two Russian military experts, Rob Lee and Michael Kaufman. And, and it, was, it was really sobering and also extremely enlightening. And I wanted to just raise a couple of, of things that, that came out of that discussion. And the first is that there's a lot of accounts that Russian soldiers did not have any idea what they were going into, um, that they were really kind of at the border thinking that this might actually go away. Uh, and so when the orders came that they were going to invade, I think, you know, there was a level of preparedness that was not there an organization that was not there. Uh, secondly, the Russian convoys went in quickly towards their, their target areas without really securing their supply lines. And so as a result, you're seeing, um, you know, what, what, sh what you would think would be quick success uh, by the Russian, by the Russians is not the case. 
there's ambushing, the supply lines are not secure. And so as a result, their success has not been secured or, or, or fast. Um, the, the third thing is that there is a level of urban warfare here that is, you know, going to really challenge the, the Russian forces uh, and the Ukrainian forces. But, um, you know, they are trying to take Kiev now. Um, and encircle that city of 2.8 million people. Uh, so we're not talking necessarily just about an air war or, you know, it, this is going to be people in apartment buildings and, you know, office buildings. This is a totally different type of, of, uh, of, of military uh, action that's, that's going to be uh, led by troops that don't really have the training for this. Um, I think there was also some miscalculation uh, over Ukrainian resolve and their ability to hold off Russian forces. And so that has also been, I think, surprising to many people who were who were following this. And to hear uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky coming in, you know, and, and, and making pleas for different things and using social media and, you know, civilians arming themselves, this is just very different than, you know, than what a lot of people expected and what we've experienced in the past. So, I mean, with that, I think that there's still a lot of open questions and there's still a lot up in the air that is hard to predict. Um, will the Russians be able to take Kiev? Where, how are we going to, you know, see civilian evacuation, the growing humanitarian crisis, supply lines for both sides, are not secure, um, refugees. So, uh, you know, it, it should be interesting, but one of the, one of the things that I, I find the most sort of surprising at this point is that there are analysts who don't believe that Russia has this in the bag. So I think that is also something to really keep an eye on because this is far from over. So I'm thinking back a couple on this question of, uh, like Zelensky's character. I'm thinking back a couple of years to a simpler time when uh, the House was impeaching Donald Trump the first time for uh, holding up aid to Ukraine in exchange for um, a, an investigation into Trump's political opponents, the, the Bidens. And Zelensky was, there's a recording of Trump talking to Zelensky of, and of others talking to Zelensky about this proposal. And Zelensky resists across the board, any kind of compromise on this issue. Like, and, I, and I'm wondering if, you know, we're so distracted by our own politics of the moment that we miss the fact that on the other side of the call was someone of character who was not willing to do the expedient, but really morally questionable thing. Uh, Matthew, Martha, any, any reaction on, on the character of this fellow who is now kind of a world hero? Uh, sure, let's happy to jump in on that. Yeah, no, I, I, what is the saying that crisis doesn't forge character, it reveals it? And I, I do get that sense with President Zelensky. But I would say that I, I do want to stand up for the intelligence community on this. I think that they called a lot of this right. They correctly predicted the Russian moves, showing that they can provide you know powerful strategic warning. I think the Biden administration made several very smart decisions to declassify intelligence, to raise the curtain on Putin's false flags and other information operations. And I think many people recognize that the will the Ukrainians had to defend their land and defend their rights as a free people were formidable. 
that is the lesson that we've learned in spades over the past two decades, the power of people to resist. Uh, I recall a conversation on this podcast a few months ago in which we discussed how well armed and trained the Ukrainian forces had become in the seven years or so since Russia's incursion into Crimea. So I, I do think we're seeing the fruits of that preparation now. I would say that I think the one thing that we didn't quite call was President Zelensky emerging as this kind of Ukrainian Churchill. But that's leadership for you. And I think we're all very happy for it. Martha. I would just add that, um, you know, one thing that's been very interesting to watch is the how the how Americans have reacted to this. And I feel like we're, we're finally reminding ourselves or being reminded by Zelensky and the Ukrainian people about our own freedoms and what we cherish about being American. And I feel like this is something that uh, somehow got obscured uh, through the years, you know, with all the, the noise and domestic uh, debates. And at, at the, our fundamental core, Americans love freedom. And we love people who stand up for the right, um, for freedom and for uh, the right um, to determine one's destiny. Well said. Well said. Matthew, let's let's fl- turn uh, to a slightly different topic. There's this uh, big debate going on right now over whether the U.S. and NATO should enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And to be clear to folks, uh, what that would mean is uh, – the U.S. and NATO engaged in combat with Russian forces. Essentially, we'd be destroying Russian anti-air capability. We would then, if we saw any aircraft, fixed wing helicopter, what have you, come into Ukrainian airspace, we would be shooting it down. We would be killing Russians. Uh, There is this uh, debate out there, uh, and there's been some polling that shows a no-fly zone would actually be fairly popular. Um, Biden's ruled it out. What do you what do you think of that position? Yes, I think President Biden has this one right. And I, I would really doubt the value of the polling on this. Um, let me make three quick points. The first is that we really are disturbed by the language here. And I think this is what you see reflected in the polling. The term no fly zone sounds very clinical. It sounds very antiseptic. It isn't. As you said, it involves killing a lot of people. Enforcing a no-fly zone would mean U.S. and NATO pilots would have to shoot down Russian planes over Ukraine. They would have to then bomb Russian facilities on the ground, radar facilities, missile batteries, runways. Some of those facilities are located outside of Ukraine on Russian and, I believe, Belarusian territory. So enforcing a no-fly zone would require striking targets inside the territory of other states. This activity would entail direct combat between U.S. and Russian forces, and it would have a serious escalatory effect. So that's point one. Second, enforcing a no-fly zone and engaging in U.S.-Russian combat would be a political gift here to President Putin. It's been observed that even if Russia subjugates the Ukrainian government, it will be a Pyrrhic victory. Russia is isolated from the world. The economy and the ruble are in free fall. President Putin is an international pariah, and NATO and the West are more unified today than they have been in years, as Martha mentioned. And there seems to be the stirrings of genuine dissent in Russia. U.S.-Russian combat would allow President Putin to claim vindication for his paranoid talk of being surrounded and to assert that he is defending Russia from American attack. So it would fortify his weakening political position. Third, simply there are just better ways to support the Ukrainians. We should expedite shipments of Javelin anti-tank and Stinger anti-aircraft missiles and other materiel. Poland should transfer to Ukraine MiGs that the Ukrainian pilots know how to fly, and the U.S. should backfill the Polish Air Forces with other planes. And we should provide battlefield intelligence to support Ukrainian military maneuvers. I think all of those things would do a lot more to help 
uh, the battle than uh, us enforcing a fly zone, which raises all these second order effects. Martha, Sarah, any any disagreement with Matthew? I'm I'm finding myself very aligned with Matthew on this issue. Agreed. I I think I think there's a visceral part of many of us that's like, let's just get in there and end this. But we've really got to let cooler heads prevail here because there's some significant trade-offs that we would be making if we followed through on those <laughs> on those instincts um, and many, many thousands or millions more casualties could come from that. Um, this could, you know, this would really take this to the next level. Um, I hope that there's still some room to maneuver uh, before things get, you know, significantly worse uh, with, with this, with this conflict. And I think that, you know, one of the big things that, you know, is, 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 is not been done yet is necessarily kind of going after the, the piggy bank, which is oil and gas. And I know that we're going to get to that, but that, that seems to me the logical next step before we kind of get into more kinetic, uh, kinetic, uh, action here. All right. Let me let me uh, ask about uh, some contingencies here. We've seen Russian forces attacking nuclear power plants. So far, we've avoided a major catastrophe, but there have been at least a couple of incidents like this. And it's hard not to imagine, at least, that this could be could have catastrophic consequences, not just for Ukrainians, but really for all of Europe and perhaps beyond. So with with that possibility, hopefully a remote possibility, but with that possibility, are there contingencies we could imagine where U.S. forces and NATO forces would have to get involved in what is right now a conflict directly between Russia and Ukraine? Matthew, go ahead. Uh, I can unspool some fact patterns, but but I don't think any of them are particularly good. Um, you know, w- one could imagine um, if they were to capture an American um, fighter, you know, one of the sort of soldiers of fortune who have uh, gone to Ukraine to fight. Um, maybe if they claim that that person is an intelligence person, you know, a, a, a spy, uh, would there be pressure on the U.S. to engage in a kind of hostage rescue? I mean, I think that would be very dangerous and escalatory. Um, I think if a uh, if a Ukrainian shoots down a Russian jet and it crashes into Polish a Polish position uh, in Poland, but somehow kills Poles and Polish military personnel, that would be a problem. I think you know strain into airspace if a, if a Russian MiG were to strain into Polish airspace, get shot down, that would be uh, very escalatory. So that could be a situation in which NATO troops and U.S. troops could become involved. Um, through the function of, uh, of Article 5. So all those scenarios, I think, are, are bad ones. I think that the, the goal here is to actually steer U.S. Um, uh, soldiers and combat away from from getting involved directly in the combat, I should say, um, and, uh, and really let the Ukrainians fight for the soil, which is so powerful. I mean, I just think that to revisit something that was said before, I mean, rarely have we seen such a clear moral example of people fighting for their freedom against foreign subversion and domination. And I think the, the more that, that occurs to muddy that narrative, more than a narrative, that, that, that reality, uh, I think the worst. All right, let's turn to the oil and gas question. Um, we've There's been this massive imposition of sanctions by the U.S. and Europe on the Russian economy, 
on Russian banks, Russian companies, certain people in the government, uh, even some SWIFT related sanctions that seem to have had a huge impact almost immediately on the Russian economy. The ruble is devaluing rapidly. Uh, there's all kinds of other indicators that uh, that's having a huge impact. But we haven't really pulled the trigger on the big sanction, which is uh, a prohibition on the purchase of Russian oil and gas. Now, there has been a, a downturn in Russian sales for other reasons, but we have not imposed that sanction. Uh, this this notably, this was the sanction that brought Iran to the negotiating table 10 years ago when Congress forced the Obama administration to basically shut down Iranian oil exports. So, uh, Martha, what are, what are your thoughts on this? So it looks like President Biden is thinking about a trip to Saudi Arabia to discuss an increase in production from that country. Uh, he sent some of his uh, White House aides and diplomats to Venezuela to talk to Nicolas Maduro about possibly increasing uh, oil oil and gas production there. That's a, its own controversy, but the the effort is to potentially replace Russian production. Um, do we do we think this is a plausible approach right now? So I think we we have a we have a short term uh, need, and we also have a longer term strategy questions at hand. And I think what the Biden administration is trying to do is address the short-term need. Now, the problem with Venezuela, actually, there are a couple of problems. One is their production has actually been quite low in recent years. Therefore, they actually lack the the kind of technical ability to to be a short-term solution. So I'm a little puzzled by that outreach to the Maduro regime. I, I don't think that sends a good signal and it undercuts President Biden's stated kind of goals of, of, of standing up for international norms, uh, because Maduro is certainly not participating in international norms, um, and uh, similar to the Iranians. Um, now, the Iranians, uh, JCPOA, I guess, would, would uh, give us a, about a million barrels a day, I believe. Uh, but, you know, there again, uh, I think the lesson from this experience is uh, you know, number one, uh, you know, Americans were surprised, I think, that we actually import anything from Russia. Um, and I think have made it clear 80% of Americans want a ban on Russian oil. Um, I think that we, we can just, we can, uh, assume from that polling data that, that Maduro and, and Iran would not, um, you know, be options that the American people would be terribly excited about either, and for good reason. Uh, now, Saudi Arabia does have swing capacity, uh, and they could potentially provide uh, on short notice about a million barrels a day um, if they agree to do it. Uh, so, so that's what I see happening. I think um, what will be interesting uh, is to see what happens on domestic oil production. We can't provide an immediate fix either. Um, uh, but uh, we do need to think long term about energy and our independence. I think that's one of the major lessons from this experience. Sarah, what, what are your thoughts on that? There is this argument on the right that if we just, you know, approve the Keystone XL pipeline, which, by the way, is something I think we should do. But like, if we just approve that and allow more drilling on federal lands and be more flexible in federal regulations, that that's somehow going to, you know, by this afternoon, uh, make the price of oil cheaper and we'll become energy independent again 
like, you know, within hours, is that, and, and I'm kind of throwing you the softball here. Is that, is that a realistic expectation? No, <laughs> uh, it's not realistic. I mean, I do think people are looking for market signals um, so that, you know, the, that the markets don't go crazy and that if they felt like the U S was going to bring Keystone back on, or that there was some assurances that, there would be, you know, adequate supply to kind of allow for the U.S. and allies to take moves against the Russian oil and gas sector that we wouldn't be facing, you know, in, in energy crisis ourselves. Um, I think that is, you know, I, I think that there could be some signals there, but it's not going to come online right away. There is no immediate fix. There is some short-term things. I mean, you know, the EU does have some reserves of of, of LNG. Um, you know, we could, you know, we could continue um, uh, working with them on that, but they don't have the storage capacity that's needed for LNG to really stockpile it. We may be facing our own energy price, uh, you know, increases. So, you know, I think that there's there's a lot at stake. Um, and, you know, but that doesn't mean that just because it can't happen today that we shouldn't be working towards solutions here that would allow us to take the moves against Russia that we're going to need to take. I mean, it's like you're, we're like shooting them everywhere in the body, but the heart and the and the brain. So like we need to really think about, you know, what we're what we're doing there. I also think that, you know, on the Venezuela and Saudi point, um, I think Martha raises, you know, really good points. Do we want to be in bed with, you know, the Venezuelan regime that we've basically distanced ourselves from, for example? At the same time, I do worry about if we're not in there, you know, talking to them, you know, what are they doing? Um, are they, you know, are they then, you know, unable to be neutralized or are they coming, you know, to, to Russia's aid? So I don't really know what the right answer is, but I think that there is a flip side of the coin too of, well, if we don't, if we don't reach out, you know, are, are they going to have, you know, are they going to, are they going to be, um, you know, working with the Russians instead? So lots of challenges. The correct strategic move here is to ban the the importation of Russian oil. And why is that important? Because it is the, the only thing that really allows the Russian economy to function. I mean, the, the Russian, Russian economy is a, is a petrostate. It has essentially no other resources. Uh, and why is it important to shut down the Russian economy? Because the concern here is about revanchism across the entire near abroad, right? I mean, the Ukraine is a great concern, obviously. But we also have to worry about if this succeeds or Russia does to Georgia, to Moldova, to Venice, the Baltic states. And so unfortunately, we're now in this position where we really have to weaken the Russian state. That just has to be one of the strategic goals of the West. And I should say of the East, too, since Japan, Taiwan and Australia are very much on board with all of this as well. And so so you want to shut down uh, their ability to make a lot of money off of Petro. Now, how do you do that without harming uh, ourselves. I mean, I think like with all, with all sanctions, you want to think of it as like a dial, right? You first want to do the things that are most directed towards their own weaknesses, that do the minimal damage to ourselves, then you, you escalate as necessary. And I think it only makes sense for us to seek to do things initially that don't hurt us as much, but then get in a position where we could uh, uh, withstand the, the, the blowback from, from Petro sanctions. And so how do we do that? Well, the cardinal rule of strategy 
is to unite your friends and divide your enemies. And so unfortunately, that does require us to do things like work with very distasteful states because we want them to increase their capacity. No one is a fan of the Saudis, but it is true that they are the what third largest uh, oil producer. And so we want to see them uh, bring more oil to market. We should do more to bring our oil online such that we can quickly uh, to Sarah's point, we should build the infrastructure so that we can put LNG onto tankers and ship it across to Europe. No, no pipeline, obviously. No, no Nord Stream two runs from um, from New Jersey to uh, France, but we can put it on tankers if we have the right infrastructure. So we should be doing that. Um, and uh, it should also be said that it, it is actually more uh, environmentally friendly for us to pump and refine oil in the United States because it doesn't have to travel as far and we do it more cleanly than they do in, in Russia. So all of those things have to happen. They should happen uh, because that allows us the greatest flexibility uh, to, to exert more, more pressure on Russia without worrying quite as much about the blowback to ourselves. All right. So this, uh, I think we're all in agreement that pursuing some sort of energy embargo on the Russians is a good idea. Begs the question, who's who's going to participate with us? It looks like Europe uh, is newly uh, evangelized on the question of Russian aggression, much more concerned about it. We've seen a bunch of policy changes in Germany that I think no one imagined a couple of weeks ago. Really amazing stuff. That's not enough, though, uh, because Russia would have a big a big customer in China and other and other big uh, developing economies. Does any of us think that we could get China par- to participate in an embargo of Russian energy sources? They did work with us on Iran 10 years ago, maybe not as much as we wanted, but they did work with us a little bit. Do we think that's possible now? I note that no one is saying yes. Uh, you know, I don't have a lot to say on this, except that I, I think the Chinese, uh, well, first of all, China will do what's good for China, uh, which won't always include Russia. Um, what I don't know is how they're discerning this so far, but they are definitely keeping, they definitely seem to be approaching this very carefully. The long-term play less uh, is going to be to draw China away from Russia. I mean, that, that, is, that, that seems unfathomable now because they're both authoritarians. They both have uh, imperial ambitions in, in their spheres of influence. But at the end of the day, that's what's going to have to happen. Russia is a spoiler state. It doesn't believe, it's certainly under Putin and Putinism, it doesn't believe in a participating in the international order. Uh, China wants to design international order most most uh, amenable to its own interests and abilities, but it is at least not a spoiler state. Also, it's just so much you know, more powerful. Again, I think that we we often over uh, overemphasize Russia's strength. It's really a, a weak state. It's a gas station with a giant army. That's basically what Russia is, and in a lot of territory. But, you know, China is, is a peer of the United States in a way that Russia simply is not. So the, at the end of the day, uh, China is going to have to be drawn away from Russia. I do think that um, China sees Russia as basically a developing vassal. I mean, I don't think that they think of, to Martha's point, they don't think of the Russians as a peer. Um, uh, they had, I think they've had you know, long, fraught thousands of years of, of, of history of, of wars and territorial uh, incursions across their own border. So, you know, I, I'm not sure that there's much love lost there. So it's worth trying. Let me just put it that way. And I also think that at this point, uh, this has gone so terribly for Russia. I think China has got to be having second thoughts about uh, the feasibility of, a, of an attack and invasion of Taiwan. Uh, and I also think they feel very uncomfortable just on the, the ideological intellectual stance that they've adopted where they've forever 
protesting about the importance of the sovereignty of the state within its own borders. And here it is, they seem to be cheering on uh, just an, an outright invasion and aggression against an independent state. So uh, in any event, to, to answer your question, this is something we should pursue with our eyes wide open without too much expectation. Let's let's talk about the, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine spilling over borders. We kind of touched on this earlier, but I'm thinking of a more specific possibility, which is Moldova. Uh, a country that is not part of NATO, a country that already hosts um, unwillingly Russian troops in the region of Transnistria, uh, one of these frozen conflicts that uh, Americans are just now kind of waking up to and remembering. Uh, there's been talk that uh, Russia, Russia's next destination could be Moldova. There are over 100,000 refugees in that country. How should the West be responding if this does spill beyond the borders of Ukraine, although not into NATO countries. What's the, does that change any of our strategy, any of our strategic considerations? I mean, if we're not willing to go into Ukraine and to really back them, I find it hard to think that, you know, sort of spill over into Moldova will change the calculation. It may, you know, up the ante on some of the, the, the stuff that we're doing in terms of economic sanctions. But my own view is that I don't really see that changing sort of the calculation, given that it's not a NATO member. I would just add to, uh, I, I agree with Sarah. I think, though, I would just add to that. Um, it, it underscores the importance of, of us continuing this uh, support to, to the Ukrainians in their fight. Uh, so that it so that the Russians cannot go beyond um, where yeah you know, hopefully not not just not go beyond where they've gotten thus far hopefully pushed back in some in some way but um, but the spillover is, is certainly um, certainly uh, should be top of mind. I, I agree with Sarah and Martha. I think uh, that what this really means is that we have to. Uh, we, don't, we have to we try to avoid answering this question by supporting Ukraine to defeat the Russians where they are, to bog them down so they won't menace Moldova directly. I, I do think that NATO membership has to mean something so that you don't want to basically af- afford the benefits of NATO uh, to non-NATO countries. And indeed, I think that's why you're having a, a strong look by the Finns uh, at joining NATO because of this exact concern. So yeah, I think my, my, my view is uh, courageously to not actually have to answer the question right now by by just pouring our support into Ukraine and keeping the Russians bogged down there. You know, the only downside to the Finns and the Swedes joining NATO is then I'm really not going to be able to feel like a rebel anymore because all of my ethnic heritage will be in NATO. You know, the Norwegians, the Swedes and the Finns, it's going to be really kind of slightly disappointed about that. Uh, not really. OK, always let's... a rebel to me, Les. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. So uh, let's talk about an, an aspect of the conflict that we're following. I don't mean to sound flip here because this, this story is just so huge and there are so many things to pay attention to. Is there something that has struck you? And, I, and I'm, I'm going to kind of go first. My, uh, I'm going to get a little personal here. My, my brother and his family live in Prague. And in the last few days, there have been two massive demonstrations in downtown Prague on Wenceslas Square tens of thousands of Czechs showing up to support the Ukrainian people. This the second time, just a couple of days ago, Zelensky addressed the crowd via Zoom as this amazing thing that uh, my brother and his family went to see. Uh, and just the, the idea for me as someone who, you know, 
feels this relationship with the Czech Republic and the Czech people, seeing them so motivated to come out and support Ukraine is really a profound thing because this is a these are a people that can be pretty cynical about world events uh, and and pretty unwilling to get involved in the in the back and forth and to see them show up in such force, at least for a demonstration. Uh, on this issue, it really kind of brought home to me how important this is to Europe, uh, not just um, the Ukrainians, but really everyone on the whole continent is is affected by what's happening here, and they know it, and they're and they're showing up, and they're and they're changing things. So that's the thing that I'm following. Who wants to go next, Sarah? Okay, well, I like to I like to usually bring in a trade piece since that's my background when we're thinking about things that aren't necessarily front and center. So um, what we've learned today is something that's been in the works now for the last uh, week or so, which is uh, bipartisan legislation that would remove Russia's permanent normal trade relations status. And with that, the U.S. could um, increase tariffs against Russia and Belarus that are right now capped, uh, at least for Russia, because it's a member of the WTO, would also allow the U.S. to pursue basically expelling Russia from the WTO and halting Belarus's accession process. So this is something, you know, really sort of unprecedented. um, And I think it sends a strong signal. Um, I don't know how much of a immediate sort of impact this would have, but it's certainly, I think, uh, a very, very symbolic uh, move. Matthew? So I think uh, the cyber war is fascinating. And what I've been surprised by in several aspects here is that it hasn't yet truly ramped up. I was expecting much more successful Russian attacks to shut down Ukrainian critical infrastructure, basically knock the country offline. That has not appeared to happen yet. And I'm not exactly sure why. I think there's probably been some successful effort by the Ukrainians to harden their systems to make it more difficult. I also wonder if the Russians just have decided not to do that or uh, are just holding something in reserve. But I, I'm waiting to, I'm waiting for that to happen in greater numbers. I've also been really interested in the growth of these sort of malicious cyber militias. These are Ukrainian belligerents or co-combatants who have decided to launch attacks against Russian institutions and users. And I think that's very interesting and very much of the times. I think what's fascinating about this war is that it really it scales from the World War One trenches being dug around, you know, Kershaw and, and Odessa to uh, wars in cyberspace that are occurring outside the borders of these countries. So there's that. And then I'm also watching very carefully, probably because of what I do for work, uh, the sort of spillover of these attacks into non-belligerents. And there, there's sort of like two basic threat vectors here. The, the first is that as cyber attacks are being traded between the co-belligerents, right, as malware is being laced into Ukrainian computers and Russian computers and vice versa, some of that will leak out. That happened in 2017 with the NotPetya attack, where there was a Russian attack against Ukrainian systems. And then the the malware literally just like crossed borders. And all of a sudden, it was in Europe and America and Asia and cost billions of dollars in damages. So looking out for that. And then as the U.S. continues to squeeze Russia, I I think it's probably only a matter of time that um, Russian cyber attacks start being launched bilaterally directly at American and Western interests, both governments and then critical infrastructure and businesses. And I've been counseling my clients to ready their defenses and prepare for what is likely to be a long 
digital siege. Martha. You know, I've been very intrigued by um, yes, the the disinformation campaigns uh, you know that that the Russians have been engaged in for some time now. Um, but also watching reactions, uh, as you noted, in uh, Czechia and other uh, countries in Europe, uh, reactions to uh, the conflict, also um, just overall, um, you know, people's perceptions of, uh, of what's happening. You know, Secretary Gates uh, wrote an interesting op-ed in the Washington Post yesterday. And essentially, he outlined uh, you know, that we have these two major threats, Russia and China. We're basically you know, entering into another Cold War, and we do need to go back to what worked in the Cold War. And a couple of things that, that worked uh, were foreign assistance and you know, creative um, uh, kind of public diplomacy. Um, you know, the, the U.S. Information Agency um, that... that we abolished or, or scrapped, um, you know, and thinking that everything would all be hunky-dory after the Cold War was over. But, you know, one thing that that I followed closely, um, as you know, I follow um, German politics closely. Um, and, and I think that it was a mistake not to continue to, to, to kind of push on, on some of these efforts, um, even among our allies. Uh, to to tell tell the truth um, and tell tell the you know inspire people essentially um, it's easier said than done we struggled with this and back in the Bush administration um, uh, with pu- public diplomacy efforts but I think this is actually proven to be a very important uh, foreign policy uh, tool okay. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Join us for our next event in partnership with Women in National Security's Media Festival on March 15th at noon, where we will be hosting Lauren Claffey, Heather Molino, and Sarah Isger. These three powerful women in media will share their stories and lessons for those interested in joining the national security media ranks. Find out more about this event and the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnetsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Wesley Jeffries, and Jesse Clauber for research assistance and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.